We come then to this uh, Sabbath morning sermon of our communion season, and at the close of it we anticipate celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And we turn then to the chapter read, John 18, and take as our text verse 11. John 18, 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Amen. So far in our preparation services, we have asked, first of all, where have your sins gone? And the Christian can reply and say, they're cast away. They're forgiven. That's where my sins are gone. And then we asked, how are your sins gone? Well, we say in answer to that, they've been placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been imputed to him. There's been a transfer of guilt away from me and on to him. And that leads us to ask then, well, what happens to Christ if he is bearing the guilt of my sin? And of course, what happens to him is the cross. And so our question this morning is, what have your sins cost? These three questions were, where have your sins gone? How have your sins gone? What have your sins cost? And verse 11 says, Then Jesus said unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? Peter had been wielding his sword in a well-meaning but ultimately futile attempt to defend the Lord and prevent him being arrested and taken and crucified. What have your sins cost? You who profess and love the Lord. Well the short answer is. Our sins have cost Christ his life. That's why he died. The cost for our sins. Doesn't fall on us. Or there will be no point in being here today. There will be no hope, no mercy, no salvation, no good news to preach, no gospel to announce. The cost for our sins has fallen upon him. He said that. He gives his life for his sheep. He's the good shepherd. He died in our room and in our stead. He suffered the just for the unjust. That's what the whole point of the cross is. It's not just some interesting fact of history it's not a an in, terrible injustice that we should be appalled at which we should of itself it's not just a mere example of a good man willing to suffer for his principles it's christ taking our room and our stead and our punishment and our death that we might have his life we're not worthy of such a savior but we bless god for him and we lift up his name. And that's what we're doing here. We are professing Christ as this wonderful saviour. And calling sinners to come to him. So our question then today again is. What have your sins cost? And we have this described for us in our text. Or pictured at least for us in our text. 
by an illustration. And the illustration is this cup. A cup that was figuratively given to the Saviour by God the Father. A cup that he had to drink. A cup that was ultimately to bring him to his death. If we had time, we'd have read in other Gospels accounts where in the Garden of Gethsemane he is wrestling in his prayers. If it be possible, he's praying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He's come through that trial and has embraced it and said, I must take this cup, I will take this cup. And that's what he's saying to Peter here then. Put up thy sword. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Well, the text I think suggests three plain, simple answers for us to our question, what have your sins cost? First of all, the cost was Christ's willing submission. Christ's willing submission. We're often very thankful for poor Peter in the Gospels. He can always be relied upon to do or say exactly the wrong thing, but also exactly the sort of thing that we feel we would probably have done in the same circumstance. So we can identify with him very readily. And here is a classic Peter example. It's not that Peter is in any sense trying to do the wrong thing. He's not trying to be the... the, the rebel against Jesus. It's that he can't keep up with events. He doesn't understand what's happening. He's struggling to make sense of it all. And, and we can identify with that. And so when they come out to arrest his Lord. Whom he loves. He draws his sword. And with all no doubt the, the clumsy skill of a man. Far more used to casting nets than he is to wielding a sword. He slices off the ear of one of the mob, the servant of the high priest. We can sort of smile a little bit wryly at Peter and shake our heads maybe at times, but we need to understand the significance of what Peter did here, why the Lord told him to put the sword away. Because with that sword as he drew it and went to defend Christ, what he is effectively doing is proposing another way to Jesus. He's saying it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to be arrested. You don't have to be condemned. You don't have to be crucified. I can do another, I can set another way for you. I can defend you. I can help you. Once Jesus was arrested, the die was cast, and all disciples knew what would come. They knew they would kill him. They knew the spiral had started. And with Peter's blundering swordsmanship, he is in effect saying to Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. What was Jesus going to do when another way suddenly is presented to him at that very moment, having wrestled in the garden of Gethsemane earlier to take the cup or not? Asked if there was another way. If it be possible that this cup pass away, what's he going to do now that Peter, one of his favorite disciples, is presenting another way for him? Was this a belated answer? Was this what he'd been crying out for? If it was possible for some other way to be revealed to him. Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell us about Christ's prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. Before the soldiers came to arrest him. 
He prayed earnestly if there was some other way that this cup should pass from him. He was wrestling in prayer, and that wrestling in prayer in the garden had cost him already great sweat drops of blood had poured from him. Such was the intensity of what he was doing. He prayed time and time and time again for hours. And the Bible even says, which I think is a phrase that is simple but astonishingly deep, he prayed yet more earnestly. Jesus praying more earnestly, becoming more intense in his prayers. With ourselves we can understand that because often our prayers can be on the surface and light. But Jesus praying more earnestly. He was in an agony, it also says, whilst he prayed. These were the decisive hours of the whole mission of salvation come to the crucible of Calvary. They were testing the willingness of Christ to be the Lamb of God. And Peter was wrong to wield the sword because it did have to be this way. There was no other way. There's something that no animal could ever be all the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, all that was going on there, in their own way prefiguring different parts of what Jesus would come and do as a substitute sacrifice for the worshipper, giving their life. All that was part of it. But what an animal can't do, can't ever do, is be willing. Can't choose to die for the people. The animals were all taken. The animals never had a choice. Their lives were taken from them. But Jesus, Jesus had to offer himself willingly. That was the price. That was the cost. Willing submission. And that was the wrestling that he had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Would he offer himself up to the cross for our sins? You see, it was a key condition of the justice of God. The way God's justice worked. He did allow for there to be a substitute. It's a wonderful um, part of the justice of God that he lets a substitute take the punishment. But he makes this absolute requirement. The substitute must be willing. You can't just drag someone into it and say they'll suffer for me. The substitute has to be willing. And that's what this cup was in the garden. It was showing Christ as well in that cup what was coming. It was full, it was in-depth and detailed, a revelation to him of all that was required of him in the sufferings that were coming upon him. It had to be that. It had to be a complete disclosure of what was coming. Nothing could happen that would surprise him or that he wasn't expecting or that he hadn't agreed to. He had to submit to every line, to every instance of agony, And every second of suffering, he had to be ready for all that would come upon him in these last few hours of his life on earth. Nothing could be sprung upon him. God's allowance of a substitute demanded that the substitute be willing, willing to do. And to do it, he had to be told what he had to do first. That's what he wrestled with then in the garden. And that's now what the sword represented as Peter drew it. Was he still willing or would he find another way? Was he willing to go ahead or would he look for an out? Was he finally 
committing himself unalterably. Now that the full cost was about to be extracted from him. That's what Peter's intervention represents. A cold, hard trial and test of his willingness. uh, Satan had done that in the temptation in the wilderness before. He tried to put before Jesus a cheap way, a shortcut way for him to get what he was coming for. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. There'll be no cross, there'll be no suffering. Just bow and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's always trying to suggest a cheap way. No, there was no cheap way. Peter tried to offer him an out. Peter was lending him his sword effectively. Peter was proposing an alternative, but when he'd asked God, and pled with God to show him if there was any other way, if there was any other cup he could take. There was nothing. There was no other way. There was no choice then but to take the cup or fail to save his people. There was no other way to save us but the way of the cross. And so Christ tells Peter with emphasis, put away your sword. Your Savior not only died for you, Christian. He chose to die for you. He wanted to die for you. He refused to avoid it and took it. He refused. Peter thought he was throwing Jesus a rope. Christ batted it away. There was no other way that this could work. No other option. He was truly willing to do it God's way. And that meant... Taking and drinking this awful cup. Think of it like this. If Jesus' will was not really reconciled to what was happening, if he wasn't absolutely committed and dedicated, had he not decisively in the garden embraced the cup, had there been a lingering uncertainty in his mind, then he may have jumped at the opportunity Peter sent him. It was a test of his willingness and he passed the test fully. May we friends here today, may we moved to tears and weep at the willingness of our wonderful Saviour. He was willing, he was so willing to die for us. What have your sins cost? It cost the willing submission of Christ to the cup of his father's wrath. Secondly, we can also say the cost was his father's giving him the cup. Come back to our text in verse 11. First thing, Peter put up thy sword into the sheath. We've looked at that. Secondly, the cup which my father hath given me. The cup which my father hath given me. The cost was the father giving him this cup. Now we have to take some care over the meaning of what is here today. God the Father did not become man. God the Father does not and cannot suffer himself in any way. There is no such thing for God the Father as pain. There are those who teach that God the Father suffered as well as the Son. That's a terrible error. What we are told plainly about the Father is that this Father gave his beloved Son, 
in whom he was well pleased. An awful thing to do. A cup of wrath. The cup represented all the judicial punishment extracted from the Saviour by the Father as a representative of the Godhead. God is the one offended by our sins and the Father representing the three persons of the Godhead, even the Son, is extracting the punishment for all that sin from his Son in this cup. The Father was now placing him under the punishment of his wrath. That was the cost for the Son. It was him knowing that he was now being made sin. That's not too strong a language. That's what the Bible describes it. He was made sin who knew no sin. Knowing that he would now suffer what sinners deserved to suffer. Knowing that he would truly suffer what is all too often used as a light phrase, but hell on earth. The giving of that cup into Christ's hands was a a baptism, if you like, of wrath that he knew was coming. The baptism that he said he was straightened until it be accomplished. If we can say there's a point at which the formal sufferings judicially of the Saviour under the wrath and curse of God began, this is the point. The lot fell, the die is cast, the cup is given. And from that point onwards, justice has its way with him. As the representative of sinful humanity, as the one to whom are imputed all the sins of all his people, he stands before God in the rottenness of our sins, not in the righteousness of his own conduct. And to borrow the language of the uh, prophet of the Old Testament, Zechariah, the Lord God was now calling his sword to awake He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, the equal of God, yet is to be smitten by God by the sword of wrath. That's what the cup represents. And this was as far as Christ could take his disciples with him. And that's very telling. It's quite a a key point to notice There's a change here. Something is happening in this arrest of the Saviour that had never happened before in any of the Gospel accounts. Jesus had taken them with him everywhere. He took them from their nets. He took them from their money-changing tables. He took them wherever he had found them to come. Follow me, he says. Follow me, was his command. For his whole ministry... He'd even taken them into danger. He'd taken them into rest. He'd taken them into comfort and blessing and miracles and trials and opposition. He'd taken them out onto the Sea of Galilee when he knew there would be a great storm and they were in fear of their lives. He took them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the place where there was that man possessed of many devils, legion. He took them into Jerusalem itself then when they knew and he knew that the Jews were going about plotting to kill him. He took them to the upper room to be with him for the Passover, that meal that he desired to have with them. He took them to the observation and instigation of the very first Lord's Supper, 
after the Passover was done, he brought out this new meal that we are to celebrate now for this church for all time. He took them to the observes of that first Lord's Supper and then he took them with them out into the night. And he took them across the brook Kedron, as we read at the start of this chapter. And he took them into a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. He took them there. And then he went a bit further. But even then he took three of his disciples with him, John, James and Peter. He took them a little bit further with him. But then he went a little distance beyond that himself and said, pray with me. He was always taking them with him. But for the first time since he had ever said to them, follow me, he now says, I have to go alone from here on. Where I am going, you cannot follow. And I have to do this alone and by myself. And Zechariah also captures that in that same portion we mentioned earlier about the sword awakening, striking the shepherd. It says, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Peter had denied that too. I will never leave thee. I will never deny thee. Though I should die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. But what does Jesus say for the very first time? He says in the passage here, If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, verse 8. He himself is the one to put a division. It's a loving division because he has to do this for them, but he has to do it alone. But he is the one for the first time who causes that <coughs> separation. They don't understand what's happening. And they're utterly disoriented without Christ to lead them. And Mark records him in dreadfully sad. He says, they all forsook him and fled. This is a cup that is now placed into his hands. It's a cup that only he can drink at this point. It's a cup of his father's wrath. Psalm 75 speaks about a cup like this in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord that is a cup, and the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. What is the mixture in this cup? Well, there is in the cup the sins of all his people, all their sins. But that's not all. Mixed in with it is the wrath and the fury of God for all the sins of all his people. What a mixture that makes the cup that Christ takes. What a bitter cup was given to the Son. What a taste it must have had that he had to drink for us. How hard to see that cup come to him from the hand of his Father. It was not Satan giving him that cup. It was his father. The cup that my father hath given me. <clears throat> Later in his sufferings, very famously, he came to the bittermost dregs of the cup 
which was the forsakenness that he experienced of God. But even then, to change the metaphor from a cup, he recognized the hand that held not the cup but the sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Smite the shepherd. And as that sword is brought down upon the Savior, time and time again, in the forsakenness and in the darkness of the cross, what does Christ cry out? My God. And he is smit again. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? He recognizes who is holding the sword that is smiting him. It is my God. My God. He could not reach to the sweeter term. My father now. My father give me the cup. At that actual participation of it. It is my God is as far as he can go. But he never lost sight of who it was who gave him the cup. And who it was who held the sword. Why hast thou forsaken me? And there was the sincere recoil of the innocence of his nature. From this cup of wrath and punishment. But with steadfastness of will, he still took it. He plucked it, as it were, from his father's hands. It was now his cup, his cup to drink. And that takes us to our third and final point for the sermon. The cost was his own drinking of the cup. The cost was Christ's willing submission, first of all. The cost was his father's giving of the cup, secondly. And thirdly, the cost was his own drinking of the cup. Because he says at the end of the verse, shall I not drink it? It's a rhetorical question that doesn't need to be answered. Of course he shall drink it. He must drink it. Shall I not drink it? The fullest cost is, of course, the actual drinking of that cup. That was what he endured. It wasn't the mere taking of it. It was the consumption of it. The unrestrained wrath of God against sin. That's what he experienced. The entire weight of the punishment for the sins of all his people chosen before the foundation of the world. The experience in his own life of divine justice. The experience of the punishment for that law that was broken in Adam. The claims of the offended majesty of the holy God against sin. All these for him were there in the tasting of the bitterness of the cup. We try to describe in spiritual language what it must have tasted like. How would we try to do that? Think of the tanginess of the taste of sin. You see, what he tasted was not the experience of sin. He was never a sinner. And yet he was made to drink the vileness of the taste of sin. He was made sin. Our Savior came as close to sin as it was possible for him to come without becoming himself guilty of sin. He never sinned, but he took sin to himself. He was 
bearing the sins of his people on the cross. He knew the stench and the stink of the sins of his people. The shame, the vile shame. And he swallowed it all. The shame, the folly, the unbelief, the blasphemy, the deceit, the violence. It cost him being taken as a sinner. It cost him being counted as a sinner. Isaiah said he was numbered with the transgressors. That was his cup to drink. But if there is the tangy taste of sin, there's there's a sharpness in the taste as well. The taste of justice. See, man, man is duped to think that there is pleasure in sin. Man does find pleasure in sin because of his own sinful nature. There is a sinful delight in man's selfishness. Putting himself first and getting ahead and being ahead of other people. There's a delight in that, a sinful delight. There's a lurid pleasure in, in immorality. There's a stupid happiness and drunkenness. There's an arrogant smile and pride. Jesus, though, though he tasted sin for every man, tasted no pleasure in that cup at all. He tasted what we deserve to taste for our every sin. He tasted the justice of God in every drop of sin placed into that cup. The sins were placed into his cup really by his people. Every time we sin, we are putting another drop of bitterness into the cup that Christ had to take. God adds to it the wrath of God. But we are the ones who add the sin. He tasted and drank down the righteous anger of God for that sin that you've committed. And this sin that you've committed. And these sins that I've committed. For your sin and my sin. He knew the mingling in his cup of sin and justice. Of evil and holiness. He was taking really the fruit of the tree that Adam chose. Adam couldn't take it. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That was Christ's cup to drink. And he came to know the depth of it. There's also a sort of an acid taste sometimes of bitterness in that cup. He experienced the futility of sin. He was brought to be, a, to be intimately aware of the wastefulness of sin. The, the hollowness, the, the, the emptiness. And again, not by any personal guilt, of course. But by tasting and drinking this cup of his father's hand. It was acidic. It would eat away at you and leave you with nothing. Proverbs speaks about this. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17. Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But then it goes on to say in chapter 20, Bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Christ got the gravel. 
of our sins. That's what he tasted for us. But perhaps the strongest taste of all in that cup was the bitter taste of death. Christ had to suffer and die. That was the cup. He had to give his life away. His darling life. He had to offer it. He had to do that. Man could not do it. No amount of scourging him or crucifying him could actually kill Christ. He had to give up his own life. He had to tear his soul out of the body and dismiss the spirit. He had to lay down his own life. And he had to do it for others. He had to do it for you and for me. That was his experience. The end of death. The curse of the law. The cost of the covenant of works. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, he had not sinned. He was innocent. And yet he still had to die. The just for the unjust. We're probably all of us here afraid of death. We dread the thought of it. But we deserve it. We are born under the, the certainty of it. This man hath done nothing amiss. Even Pilate said that. He deserved to be let go. But death, death was in his cup before he had the condemnation of Pilate. He had the condemnation of the cup. Cold grave was to be his, de- his bed. That's what he tasted. He tasted death for every man. Hebrews says in verse 9 of chapter 2, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's in the cup. You think that would be the end of the cup? Death. Was there anything left in that cup now that death was upon his lips? Now that he was swallowing down death for his people? Well can almost just go beyond a little bit and speak about the full taste of having finished the cup. There's sort of a, a satisfaction in completing a meal, isn't there? Having an empty plate. The emptiness of the cup was perhaps the only sweet savour for the saviour in it. It was a cup and a cup drunk fully is going to finally be drained. It must at last be empty with nothing left to take. He had to take it, all of it. Nothing had to be left. And he did. He drained the dregs of that cup. He took all the mixture of justice and sin. He licked all the filthy drops of sin and the gravel of justice. He cleared it all and he came to the point where he was full. He was full of the sins of his people and he was full of the wrath of God. And he died. How did he die though? 
Did he die in defeat? Did he die in despair? He died knowing that he had taken the cup to its extent. He knew that he had finished it. The cup was empty and drained. And he cried with a loud voice, It is finished! It is finished. Sweet words of mercy and salvation and joy. It is finished. The darkness of three hours lifted. It is finished. The cup that my father gave me. Have I not drunk it? It is finished. I have completed the mission. I have given myself for my people. I took no other route. I chose no other way. I have saved them. The Lord has heard me from the horns of the unicorns. He has heard me and saved me. It is done. These are the words of Christ. The wonderful last drops of emptiness. Completion and satisfaction. It is finished. And this then is what it cost the dear sweet saviour. O child of God. What cost does he expect you to pay, given the cost that he paid? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Come and dine. Come, buy without money and without price. The table now is ready in a moment to be spread. And the Saviour has taken away all the bitter portions that belonged to you. And he has left you only with all the sweet, all the goodness, all the grace and the mercy of God, all the promises of God's love, all the tokens of Christ's favour, all the smiles of the face of Jesus, all the embraces of the heart of God. Come, he says, come and dine. All things are now ready. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for that cup that is not ours to drink. We thank Thee, Lord, that Christ has finished it and would not give any of it to us. That He wanted to have it for Himself, that we would be spared it. We could not have endured a drop, and He has finished it to the very dregs. And, oh, we thank Thee for the Lord and for what he does for sinners, and what he offers to sinners. And we bless thee, our God, that we can come now with delight and with anticipation to sit at his table and be served from his hand. Oh, be with us as we continue in thy worship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.